Father's Day to all you fathers. It is a, uh, a good day to celebrate. And uh, How many of y'all have ever heard of a, a company called Legacy Box? Anybody ever heard of that or used that? Um, so I used them a few years ago, and basically what, I think it started by a couple of college guys, really, uh, I think that were out of the University of Tennessee, and what they basically did is, is people have all these uh, VHS tapes, and you remember, y'all remember in the 80s and 90s when, you know, camcorders were really big, and you had to film your kids at soccer games with the big ones, and they got a little smaller, but every time a new one came out, there was a different tape. You remember that, and you had to do the different tapes. So everybody's probably like me. You have all these different tapes in your house of your kids growing up, and you, you can't play them anymore because, you know, it's all obsolete. So these two guys kind of figured that out and said, hey, we're going to do this thing called Legacy Box, and you put all your old stuff in a box, and you send it to them, and they digitize it for you on a thumb drive or a DVD so you can actually watch them and have them preserved, which is a pretty cool thing. What I didn't know is is that those VHS tapes, that was some kind of magnetic tape that we used to record with, those only have a shelf life of about 15 to 20 years, and then they're no longer available. Did y'all know this? I didn't know. Now you're nervous. You're going to be thinking about this all during the service. Now, man, we've got to get that done. What's the name of that, What's the name of that company again? So anyway, uh, but I thought it was interesting that people are realizing that some of the things on videotape have to be digitized, or we're going to lose it forever because... It's, it's not going to be available. Those things will not be able. And if you can even find a VCR, right? I mean, does anybody have those in your house anymore? You know, don't raise your hand because we'll all laugh at you. But anyway, but that, you know, it happens. But I, as I thought about that, um, I thought about um, how as parents, and I thought about our kids are with us about 15 to 20 years. Think about that. It goes really fast. Now, hopefully they don't leave at 15, you know, because they're mad about something or you've kicked them out or something like that. But 15 or 20 years, and then you hope all of that stuff that you've instilled in your kids in the last 15 or 20 years that you've tried to embed in their, their heads and their hearts is still going to be there when they leave home, right? That, that's what we hope, and you've only got a small window. And I know, I remember when, when my first son, our first was born, and I was thinking, people go, oh, enjoy every moment because it goes so fast, and you roll your eyes, you know, because you're like you're in diapers and going, oh, yeah, whatever, you know. But now it's like they were right. They were so right. It goes so fast. And so uh, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, man, we have a, a, you know, like those VHS tapes, we have this window to try to instill those values and convictions into their lives. And not that we ever stop being a parent, not that we ever stop modeling and sharing those values and and, and those ideas, but there is a, a sense of urgency while they're young as I've got these few years to try to mold them in, into the value system that I really believe they should have. And those 20 years can go by fast. And um, will they stay embedded? Now, I think one of the most gratifying things for a father is to watch your kids grow up and see them turning into responsible and productive citizens. Now, that might sound boring. Responsible and productive citizens. That sounds boring or maybe even robotic. You know, I want my kids something more exciting than that. I want them to be highly successful. I want them to be maybe even famous, but just responsible, productive citizens. That may not sound like something to get excited about. But we have high expectations for our kids, don't we? There's things that we want them to do. But whose expectations are we instilling in them? Is it ours? Is it theirs? Is it the culture's or is it God's? Or is it a combination of all those? Of course, it's probably a combination, but we have to always be monitoring that. 
What are the expectations we have for our kids? And one of those things I've observed in fathers over the years is a, a sense of satisfaction and maybe even pride. And when I say pride, I know pride can be a bad thing, but it also can be a good thing. Where a father, when you ask them about their son or their daughter, say, hey, what's, uh, what's so-and-so doing now? And they go, oh, man, she's doing great. She's got this great job, and you know, she's a mom now, and we got grandkids. And you, you see that satisfaction of they see them as an adult starting to enjoy life and, and, and be successful. And some of the things that they even, you've instilled in them as a father, they're actually living out. And it's a, a sense of peace and satisfaction there, growing in the a, different aspects of their lives. So one of the things that I hope for my kids is not necessarily that they're successful. Yeah, that's a part of it. But I hope my kids will be faithful. Faithful to the values, to grow up in the faith of Jesus Christ and follow his teaching in every aspect of their lives. And well, that's what you're supposed to say because you're a preacher. No, I really mean that. I really want my kids to be faithful to that. 20 years from now, I want to know that they really still believe that Jesus is their Savior and their Lord and that they're trying to mold their life after those things that he taught about in the Gospels and every aspect of their life. But the reality is that just as I want my kids to have that, I want that for myself. I want to be 20 years from now still trying to model those things that I should be modeling as a, as a dad and following what Jesus has taught us in the Bible. But I have my moments of weakness. My faith gets weak. I get frustrated. I get selfish. And I, I try to do it on my own and do it my way. And go, ah, I know what we're supposed to do, but I'm just going to do this because I'm frustrated. Or I'm mad or I'm just impatient. But another reality is that we as fathers will also go through times when we observe our kids going through some destructive things, right? They're going to have periods of times where their faith is weak. They're going to have times when they get selfish, when they try to make it on their own. And all the stuff that we've instilled into them, they're kind of pushing back on that and go, yeah, I know all that, but I'm going to go it on my own. And we have to kind of watch them go through some things, and that can be very difficult. But how do we respond as dads, as parents, when we observe our kids behaving in a way that goes against the values, it goes against the convictions that we did our very best to instill in them. How do, how do we handle that? That's tough, isn't it? And if you're a father today, um, you understand and you have been there um, that if you, if you haven't been there yet where they're going against your, your values and convictions, it's coming. <laughs> I don't want to scare you or alarm you, but it's coming, okay? They're going to they're gonna challenge you. So we're going to finish up our study of Nehemiah today. Some of you may not have been here. We've been doing this study on Nehemiah, and it's been interesting. Um, it's an Old Testament writing uh, about a, a guy who went into his hometown and tried to uh, restore all these things that have been broken down for many years. But basically, what we're going to see today is, is that Nehemiah, after he had been in Jerusalem for 12 years... Now, we've been talking about just kind of a window of 52 days where they built the walls back after 100 years of laying in ruins... He went into town. You remember he was the cupbearer for King Artaxerxes in Babylon. He came all the way across the world, basically, or a long way, about 1,000 miles, to say, hey, this is our town. This is Jerusalem, and it's been lying in ruins for 100 years. Let's do something about it. He says, I've come from the king. I've been praying about this. God gave me this opportunity. The king gave me permission to come here. I've got all these resources. We are not being who God's called us to be. This is not who we are, a, a broken down town, a broken down people. And they started rebuilding the walls. And people got excited because he presented this vision of, that produced passion in people. Remember, a picture of the future that produces passion in people. So he laid that out and they started rebuilding the walls. And after they rebuilt the walls, they got excited because there was... 
man, look what God did through us. These walls have been laying on the ground for 100 years, and in 52 days, we got them back up, and people started getting excited about their identity again. We're God's people. We're supposed to be reflecting to the rest of the world who God is and what a relationship with Him is like, and they got excited. And they went themselves, not Nehemiah, but themselves to Ezra, the high priest, and go, we need to start worship again. We've neglected worship for years. We're ready to get it started again because we've seen what God has done through us. And so we saw this passionate worship service, this meaningful worship, and these celebrations that led them to a time of confession. And that confession helped them connect the dots. Why were we in exile? Why were we a broken people for over 100 years? Well, because we broke our covenant with God. And as they confessed, they realized, yeah, we really did get away from God. We neglected worship. We, rene- we neglected who we were. We let the people around us change our identity into somebody we never were. That's not who we really were, but we were acting like people that we really weren't. And God put us in exile for a while, but he's brought us back. We need to renew that relationship with him. And so they started doing that. Now, what gets a little obscured in this writing is that Nehemiah spent, after those 52 days, the walls were not actually completely rebuilt. All the gaps were filled in, and you could see kind of the skeletal structure of the walls. But he spent the next 10 months and 11 years fortifying those walls. I had a guy in the first service come up afterwards and say, hey, I've been there. He says, you know those walls are from like... This stage to like the third row, that's how thick they are. So they got them up and going, but they had to fortify them for the next 12 years. And and Nehemiah stayed there as governor, and he didn't just finish building the walls and making them high and thick. He also started all these reforms within the community to saying, we're God's people, we need to start reflecting that. And and the, the worship became a part of their everyday lives. They were following back into that covenantal relationship they had with God, and they were remembering those things that God had called them to remember. So he stays there for 12 years, and then he leaves and goes back to Persia for 12 years. And after those 12 years, he says, I'm going to go back and see how it's going there. I want to see what's happening in Jerusalem. I spent 12 years of my life and invested in those people as their governor, and we we had some amazing times together. I want to go back after 12 years and see what's happening. So that's what we're going to read about today. So we're going to read from the last chapter of Nehemiah, chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 6 through 29, and I skip around a little bit. Not that verses 1 through 5 aren't important, but I'm going to start right there. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elishib had done providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was, it was... Excuse me. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mathaniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. 
Remember me for this, O God, and do not, my God, do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all, co- all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? See, he's connecting. goes, guys, didn't y'all learn? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night out by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. <laughs> I, made them, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of the marriages like this that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons, Joiada, uh, son of Elishib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I'm going to stop right there. So I know that's a lot of stuff, and some of it you might go, what in the world is he reading about? Okay? But do you think he was happy when he went back to Jerusalem? No. I mean, he's going, what in the world? Man, I invested, you know, 12 years of my life into these people, and look at what's happening. So we're going to kind of walk through that a little bit. You think about it. It's been 12 years he was there, and then 12 years he went back um, to Babylon. So that's 24 years. And he looks back and thinks about, I remember 24 years ago when I rode my donkey into this town with all these resources to rebuild the walls. And remember, he inspected the walls at night to see what they were. And now, 24 years later, he comes back and he goes, what has happened? The walls are still there and they look great. But what has happened inside? What has happened inside? And you heard what he saw. It did not take long for those revisions to be ignored and for the people to fall back into those, those old habits they had. In a relatively short period of 12 years, and you say 12 years, that's not a short period, but it seemed that way. In a short period of time, people forgot the values. They forgot the convictions that had brought about this 
passionate transformation to turn around, not only in a, uh, uh, you know, a, a construction project of the walls, but it was also a reconstruction of their spiritual lives and their worship to God. All of that was transformed while Nehemiah was there. So he, he goes for 12, year, uh, 12 years of work and leave for 12 years, and when you come back, what in the world? What has happened here? Things have changed. People did not change for long. They fell back into the ways of the pagan culture around them. Did y'all hear those two names of people who were always trying to stir up trouble those 12 years ago when he was building the walls? Those guys were in, living in Jerusalem stirring up trouble again. And he's going, what happened? They fell back into the ways of that pagan culture, and Nehemiah had to remind them, don't y'all remember where this leads? This is why we were taken over by the Babylonians in the, in the first place, and Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed, and we went into exile don't y'all remember that? Now, I can kind of feel like a father who sees his kids getting into trouble. He has to act. Have you ever, as a father, came in on your kid when they weren't expecting <laughs> and caught them doing something? It's like, oh, dad's home. This is not a good situation, you know? I mean, we, we've, we've had that, and this is kind of what happens. He comes in, and he's like, what in the world? I've taught you better than this. I, you know, I, I, I remember um, <clears throat> recently hearing about somebody who made a little visit to uh, their kid off at college, and what they saw in the room there was uh, <clears throat> kind of you know, like, hey, we raised you better than this, you know, that kind of thing. Those things happen. We walk in on our kids, and we go, I know they know better than this. Why are they doing this? We've taught them better than that. And then as parents, we start beating ourselves up, don't we? I know I taught them better than this. Why are they doing this? And I know that's how Nehemiah must have felt. But he had these options. He could have said, you know what? This is ridiculous. I'm just going to let it go. I'm going back right now. I spent 12 years of my life with these people. I invested in them. I gave the best years of those, best of myself those 12 years to these people. And if they can't get it together, they're on their own. And he just packed up and left. But Nehemiah couldn't do that because he was invested. Relationally, he was invested. These were his people. He could have ignored or rationalized. He goes, well, yeah, this isn't great, but at least the walls are still up. They look great. At least that part of the project is done. It could be worse. And there's truth in that statement, but the real issues needed to be addressed. And Nehemiah had to do something. He could go back to King Artaxerxes and go, you know, you know all that money and time you let me go back? Those people are idiots. They won't get it together. Let's just, you know what, let's just send it and just destroy it again and just wipe it out. Let's just be done with Jerusalem. He couldn't do that. They were his people. It was part of his identity, Jerusalem, that relationship with God. And he was trying to get people to see that it's part of who you are. Why have you let these people around you turn you into people that you really aren't? Have you ever had that moment with your kid where you go, man, who are you? Who are you? That's not who we raise you to be. That's not who you really are. You've let your friends, you've let somebody else deceive you into being something that you really aren't. Because you're trying to be something that you really aren't. That's not what God intended. And so that has to be the way that Nehemiah felt. But we have to be careful to see here, this was not a complete failure. And by the way, Nehemiah didn't blame it on everybody else. He says, oh, you see uh, Tobiah's back in here and that other guy's back in here and they cause trouble. It's not really the people's fault. It's these people. They're the fault. Sometimes we don't. Uh, we try to blame things on, on other people. Say, yeah, my kid's doing that because, you know, that kid, the neighbor's kid, he's, you know, he's, he's trouble, you know, and if it's all his fault, he would have never done that if it wasn't been for the neighbor's kids. Or the teacher calls you in and, you know, it's all their fault, you know. No, and my kid would never do something like that. It's you. It's the school system. It's, that's what the problem is. It's you. You know, we, we don't take responsibility for our kids and their actions or point it back to other people. 
And sometimes we have to really realize, and this is what Nehemiah, he stepped back and he says, you know what, I'm going to inspect the situation, and he's going to point people back to the vision. That vision that they originally had that created a passion in them for the future. And that's what he did. He didn't just ignore it. God's vision and expectations were still what God wanted. And Nehemiah was not going to back down from that. He was very passionate. So we have to be careful again and say this wasn't a a complete failure. Those 12 years that he spent there, they were not away. Some major good came out of that. A lot of people, people still had that picture of the future that produced passion in the people. Some people were still very much um, saying, I'm on board with that. He's right. Nehemiah's right. We need him back here to kind of keep us on track. Yes, some people lost sight of the vision, and that was God's vision, not just Nehemiah's. They got selfish with the vision. Some people gave up on the vision or allowed the vision to be distorted by other people. And Nehemiah's going, you can't do that. You can't do that. But not everyone. Nehemiah named several people who he said, they're trustworthy. I put them in charge of these things because they were trustworthy. And I want you, everybody to hear this loud and clear. Sometimes we want to just give up on our culture. And man, last year there was a lot of negative stuff going on. It's like, our culture's going to hell in a handbasket. It's terrible. And yeah, there's some things that need, but we need to think about. There's always, always, always going to be a remnant, a small group of people who will hold fast to what God's called us to do in the world. We see that throughout the Bible. Even when some of the prophets got frustrated and go, Oh God, you know, there's nobody left that's any good. You remember Elijah and all that? And God goes, Yeah, yeah, there is. I know the exact number of people that have not given up and are still faithful to me, Elijah. You're not the only one. Don't give up. I will always have a remnant of people who will hold fast to the vision. And these people continued to hold fast because they were continuing to anticipate a way for a Savior to come into the world. They didn't know it. Nehemiah's going, you don't need another governor. You don't need me to be here. You need a savior. Because guess what? We're always going to mess up. And we still fall into that junk today, y'all. Well, you know, know, this president, this president, that president. Y'all heard me harp on that all last year. It's not about the president. It's about our hearts. It's about how we do life every single day. That's what changes a nation, not the person at the top. That is not who changes a nation. And this is what Nehemiah is trying to get. Y'all, it takes everybody. And even when the the leader is gone, y'all have to do what God's called. You have to be who God's called you to be all the time. So Nehemiah is not passively aloof. He's not just going, ah, whatever, I'm done. He's not a control freak, though it may seem like it. He is a passionate leader who cares deeply about the people, his people. They're part of his heritage, and he cares deeply that they're being who God's called them to be. So I want to ask us, those of you who are fathers today, I want to ask you a question. Do we as fathers have that passion to lead our kids to be who God has called them to be like Nehemiah did for that that city? Do we really have that passion? Are we passively aloof? Think about that for a minute. You know what passively aloof means? It means your kids are doing something and you're frustrated. You go, I told you not to do that. And they're not paying attention. Not that that ever happens, okay? But you get frustrated because they're wearing you down. And they wear you down. And you just get frustrated. And you just become passively aloof. And I go turn the Braves game on. And I just tune them out. I don't care what you do. I'm so mad at you right now. I'm just going to tune you out. So I'm going to watch the Braves game. And do whatever you want. Because you're not listening to me anyway. You ever had that? You ever said that? That's not what I'm supposed to do. I need to turn the TV off. I need to get face to face with my son or my daughter. And I say, do you understand why I'm upset? Do you understand why I'm trying to instill this in you? Because I love you? Because 
the way you're going, the things you're saying, the things you're doing are harmful to you down the road. I've got a lot more in my rear mirror than you do in experience, and I don't want that to happen for you. you got to listen to me, but don't become passively aloof or be a control freak where you can try to control everything your kids do. Ask your kids, do they like that? No, they don't like that. It has to be a partnership, but you are the leader, but you're leading them. And do we look to blame someone else for our kids' behavior? You know, like I was saying, oh, somebody at the school, if they would just get a good teacher in there, if they would just get another coach, my kid would be a star, you know. If they would just change the test around, my kid could go to MIT and, you know, all that. You know, it's always somebody else. Do we justify or rationalize our kids' behavior? How do we help our kids develop a true identity and purpose in Jesus? Well, it starts with us. We need to know what our purpose and our identity is in Christ. And we need to be able to instill that in them. And it's a process. Just like Nehemiah went through all those struggles and drama in those 52 days of building the walls. But he had an unwavering faith. He got through all of those things. Continued to paint for them a picture of the future that produced passion in them. And we, like Nehemiah, must have that passion. Our kids need to see that passion in us. You need to be more like Jesus. They need to see in us that we really are trying to be like Jesus. They must see that we walk our talk. Not just talk it, but we actually walk it. We must earn moral authority with them by our actions and behavior. Because no matter what we say, they're watching what we do. Isn't that right? We must also inspect the expectations of our kids. You know, I remember there was a movie called Uncle Buck. Y'all remember that? And he was, I love that, I love John Candy. And, uh, you know, he had that thing where he goes, hey, did you brush your teeth? And they go, yeah. He goes, wait a minute, did you just wet your toothbrush? And say that you did it because I have a friend that works for the police department. He can tell if you actually brushed your teeth or you just wet your toothbrush. And the kids were going, inspect. And someone said a long time ago, people don't do what you expect them to do. They do what you inspect. That's true, isn't it? A lot of people don't do what you expect them to do. And sometimes your kids are going to try to get by. But we have to be the kind of parents, kind of fathers that say, no, I'm going to inspect this because I want to make sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're developing the right pattern so that when you are an adult, you'll already have those down. And that's important. And we got to be willing to be accountable ourselves and have someone inspect us and be accountable. Now, please don't think because of what we've read today that I think we should do what Nehemiah did when kids get off target. You know what I'm talking about? He called down curses on them and beat them and pulled their hair out. (laughs) You know, I mean, I'm not saying we should do that. I know we feel like doing that sometimes. But, man, when he came into town, people were going, dude, what happened to your hair? Nehemiah's in town. (laughs) And he is mad. He is upset that we, you know, 12 years ago he started all this stuff, and we have let it, you know. And we laugh about that, but, man, he was serious business. Now, again, I'm I'm not promoting abuse, but, man, he got their attention because he was like, no, I can't let this go. I can't let this go. I can't let y'all be somebody you're not. And we cannot, as fathers and parents, be passively aloof and just hope our kids will somehow get godly conviction and values when all we do is sit on our phones and and binge watch programs that have terrible values. That doesn't set an example for them. Oh, I I know this isn't a good program, but I'm watching it because, you know, I'm an adult and I can handle all that stuff. I don't know. Just as Jesus, just as God called Nehemiah to, into a place of leadership, God has called us as fathers to a role, to a place of leadership. As Nehemiah did, we must do this. We must pray, God, I need your help. My son or, or daughter is in a place right now, a dark place, and I don't know what to do. I'm telling you, if you haven't been there, you will be there. 
And God, I need your help. I don't know what to do. And I need you to help me know what to do, what to say, how to handle the situation. Be bold in the way that we ask for things from God. Remember when he asked the king, King, I want to go back. We need to be bold sometime and ask things for our kids that they can't do on their own. Be bold in that. Work on a vision for our families that can produce a passion for our kids for the future. That they get excited about their future. That you believe in them. That you're going to encourage them. You tell them, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. And I'm going to be behind you every step of the way. You have to to work on that vision. you got to be willing to take time and work through those dark moments. That drama. Sometimes they're not real dark moments. They're just drama, right? And we have to work through those things. Don't just be passively living. Well, I guess they'll get over it. Good luck with that. Oh, you'll find another boyfriend. Don't worry about it. And then turn the braves on. Oh, what? No, you got to sit down and tell them about your experiences with breaking up, your experiences with hard times and not making the team or, or missing the shot or whatever it is. They need to hear that you've been through that and you understand. Be willing to work through those things. Earn moral authority by walking your talk, knowing your kids see you, not just saying these things, but you model it. Don't ignore injustice. Don't ignore immorality. Call it out, but have positive solutions for that and directions going, this is why this is wrong, and I want you to understand why it's wrong, and here's the direction you need to go so that that won't harm you. Kids need to hear that we don't just tell them it's wrong or tell them they didn't do it, but how can they follow a direction and a positive solution so that they can get back on track. And they need to see you as a parent actively reconstructing your vision in your life. And this is what I mean by that. There are some of people who are a little bit older today here, and when your kids were growing up, there was a whole different set of things you were dealing with as a parent, right? But now, those of us who are raising kids right now, we're dealing with stuff that you never dealt with. It's not any worse or any, it's just different. And we got to be able to be creative and change our perspective sometime. And how are we going to help our kids see that the way God wants us to do can be done, even in the midst of all this crazy stuff that's going on? And we got to understand that. They need to see that we're reconstructing our vision to God's vision, even when the culture's saying one thing. And the way I understand that. I, here's what they're saying, and I try to explain that to them, but here's what God says, and here's the two, and you've got to weigh these. You're going to listen to culture, or are you going to listen to God? And God's word is the same today, yesterday, and how long? Forever. Forever, and we need to instill that in them. But here's the deal. Here's the good news. It's never too late to start improving as a father. Never. Do not let Satan tell you, oh, I've already blown it with my kids. It's not true. Do not believe that lie. It's never too late to start improving as a father or restoring a relationship. It is a process. Just like Nehemiah took him a process of 12 years, and then he went back 12 years later, and guess what? He's still in the process. God has never and never will give up on you, ever. And the door of forgiveness, the door of grace that gives us a restored relationship with God our Father is permanently open because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's, did you hear what I said? That door of restoration and forgiveness is permanently open because of what Jesus did. Not what Nehemiah did, not what we do as fathers because we're going to screw up, but Jesus permanently opened that door. Now, I want to say something on Father's Day. I know it can be difficult sometimes for some of y'all have not had good experiences with your dad. And this day is kind of like, eh, not my favorite day. It can be like that. But it doesn't take away from the fact that God throughout the, the Bible said, 
Who did he, what was the example he gave of our creator? A heavenly father. And because your father hasn't been the father he has, should have been, does not take away that God is the heavenly father that we need and has been faithful and will never be unfaithful to us. So today on Father's Day, we remember how much our father wants, wants meaningful relationship with all of us. And maybe there's somebody here today that needs to come back to your heavenly father and start restoring that relationship.